Hi, this is Sean Fenske, editor of MPO and ODT Magazine, and I'm here today to talk about real-world evidence as it relates to the medical device manufacturing and development environment. It's a topic that's certainly been getting more attention, especially since it's been uh, cited in the uh, 21st Century Cures Act as part of a drug development strategy. So we reached out to our regulatory go-to guru, Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences, to uh, speak with us today about what real-world evidence is, why it's getting some attention recently, and how medical device manufacturers can use it and what they need to know about it. So welcome, Mike, to another session of Mike on MedTech. And uh, let's start with what is real-world evidence and how is it how does that relate to medical device manufacturers and the medical device approval process? Well, thank you, Sean, for the opportunity to speak with you today as well as your audience. Always a pleasure. Uh, this is a very important and certainly a very timely topic. Uh, as you just highlighted, it, it was um, uh, uh, mentioned in, um, uh, in, in, in the recent legislation, and FDA put out a guidance on this just a few months ago on real-world evidence. Um, we can provide a link to that guidance along with this podcast for the audience. But simply put, real-world evidence, or what I call real-world data, uh, just means um, data or evidence uh, collected about a medical device or a drug uh, while it is on the market, out, not necessarily within a clinical trial. In other words, um, it's how our product is used in the real world. As most people know, evidence that's collected in the clinical trial is largely what I call artificial because the manufacturer has a lot of control as to how that device is used in the clinical trial, uh, but obviously once that product is on the market, the manufacturer, for all practical purposes, has no control whatsoever. Um, and we'll get into that more as, as we continue our discussion. But again, simply put, real-world evidence um, means uh, actual data of how our device is used in the real world, uh, not in, as I sometimes like to call it, the theoretical world of regulatory affairs where people actually read and follow what is on a product's label. So is this more of a post-market surveillance uh, tool, or is this being used uh, prior to approval in more of a real-world, uh, say, clinical trial? That's a very good question. So, yes, this is, uh, to use the phrase, post-market surveillance, which is the drug, uh, what we call it on the drug side of the world, the medical device equivalent of that is what we call a post-approval study. Uh, there's a fine line, a fine difference between the two. But the important thing to remember here is that it is not in a clinical trial. As you know, we do often do clinical trials of a product after it is on the market, for example, to do a label expansion or to, to add additional indications to, to, a, to a label. By definition, it would be hard to imagine a scenario of collecting real-world evidence on a product prior to FDA clearance or approval because the only way, at least here in the United States, that we could legally use that, uh, that device prior to a clearance or, or approval is in a clinical trial. 
Now, of course, notice I put the caveat on there in the U.S. If we have real-world evidence from outside the U.S., perhaps a medical device has got a CE mark and is already on the market in Europe, um, but not yet on the market in the U.S., then that could certainly fall under the general umbrella of real-world evidence. But, of course, now we get into the issue of uh, uh, using data from outside the U.S. Uh, as part of a U.S. submission. That certainly can be done, but that's a topic of a different discussion. Okay, so if, uh, if we are using this real-world evidence, when should it be considered? When's the ideal time for it to be uh, used? So typically the best time, as I said, let's, for the sake of our discussion today, let's limit our, our discussion to, here to the United States. So given that it really doesn't make sense to talk about real-world evidence, at least for U.S. evidence, prior to um, the original clearance or approval, what we're really talking about here is using this as part of a label expansion. So simply put, we have a medical device on the market already that's indicated for one thing. We want to go back to the FDA uh, and say we would like to add this additional indication to our label. In the regulatory vernacular, that's what we call a label expansion. In the past, what usually has been done is that FDA has required a um, randomized controlled uh, uh, I'm sorry, a randomized clinical trial, RCT, which is typically considered the gold standard, uh, they have not been keen on accepting real-world evidence, that is, data collected outside of the, uh, of the um, clinical trial. Uh, they typically will insist on uh, using the gold standard, the clinical trial data, even though people may very well be using your device off-label for that indication that you now want to go back to, to FDA and add. So quite frankly, this is the whole impetus, this is the whole reason why people are talking about this, because why should a company have to spend the time and money doing a new clinical trial to collect data that we essentially already have as in the form of real-world evidence? So again, to make this as simple as I can, the, uh, the, the, the most common and the best way to use real-world evidence um, is in the form of a label expansion, adding an indication to a device that is already cleared or approved to be able to, um, uh, you know, to add that to the label. So you've already touched on a few, uh, you know, reasons why there is some, some pushback against uh, real-world evidence. Are there other reservations that the FDA, either the FDA or uh, industry medical device manufacturers, have uh, about using real-world evidence? Well, sure. That's a great question, Sean. So like everything, there's advantages and disadvantages. As my grandmother used to say many years ago, that's why they make chocolate and vanilla. So on the on the negative side, for those that do oppose the idea of using real-world evidence, they would probably argue that real-world evidence is not collected in a, uh, a well-controlled clinical trial. You know, as I, as I hinted at earlier, uh, clinical trials 
companies have a lot of control in terms of uh, who the investigator is. Uh, we, we typically make very, very certain, or at least we're supposed to make sure that the investigators are closely following the protocol, that all of the inclusion and exclusion criteria are met, and so on. Um, so, but in the real world, uh, that is outside of the clinical trial, uh, nobody has that kind of control. So from that perspective, the data is, as a statistician might say, a little messier, a little dirtier. But on the flip side, others would argue that it's much more realistic because unfortunately, although the randomized clinical trial is considered to be the gold standard by many, including the FDA, in many ways, it's really, quite frankly, very artificial because it is not reflective of the way we practice medicine in the real world. There have been examples of medical devices that have gotten onto the market, that have gotten uh, very good results in the clinical trial, but after they get on the market and now, you know, we don't have as much control, now anybody can essentially use them how they want, however they want, they sometimes become problematic and in a few cases so problematic, in fact, that those medical devices have been withdrawn from the market. So a lot of people think that the randomized clinical trial is the gold standard because it's good. Um, that's not necessarily the case. In my opinion, um, uh, if we have uh, good data, whether it comes from a clinical trial or outside of a clinical trial, um, uh, it, it doesn't really matter. If we have good quality data, we should be able to use it, and why should we have to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, um, to collect additional data if we've already got it? And, and, and one and other thing, Sean, uh, one also could argue, especially with medical devices, that real-world data is actually better than clinical trial data because it is more realistic. It is more rep representative of how we actually use that medical device in the real world. So, again, there are advantages and disadvantages to everything, but overall, I think that the advantages of being able to use real-world data uh, outweigh the, the potential risk. There, there, you know, we, we do have to have some limitations. We do have to have some checks and balances. Uh, but at least in my opinion, unlike some people, um, I'm not at all against using real-world data when it makes sense. You know, this uh, real real world evidence or real world data kind of resembles, uh, from a non-regulatory standpoint, a something in the development design and development process that's gaining uh, a lot of attention, and that's human factors, um, especially when you're talking about improving upon a device or uh, you know incremental innovation of a device where you see you know, say how a surgeon is using an instrument in his real-world scenario, the design team goes in, speaks with the surgeon, finds out exactly what he's doing with it, where there are limitations or where he's experiencing a challenge, then they come out with the next version, you know, and using that human factors information, it really kind of resembles this real-world evidence that's being used in the approval world or the regulatory world. This is being used in the developmental side. Well, that's an excellent point, Sean, and it's, it's actually uh, it's funny that you've mentioned human factors or ergonomics because just recently I was at a major medical device conference and I happened to sit in on 
somebody else's presentation, they were speaking just before me on human factors, and that person was uh, describing how they did a particular human factor or usability study for this medical device, and one of the criteria was to make sure that the investigators had read the um, directions for use. And at the end of the presentation, I made the comment or uh, the sort of rhetorical question, well, you realize that your human factor, your usability study is inherently unrealistic. And that person said, what do you mean? And I said, because you're requiring people in this study, and this is very similar to the clinical trial issue that I mentioned a moment ago, to read the directions for use. And in the real world, we all know, whether we want to like it or not, that nobody reads it. And so, you know, human factors or usability, just like clinical trials, what is the point of doing these studies if they're not realistic, if they're not representative of the way we practice medicine in the real world? As an engineer myself, and this perhaps is a topic for a different podcast, I'm more concerned about how the physician actually uses my product in the real world. In other words, as a former R&D engineer myself, I would go far, so far as to say that if my product, if my device cannot be used safely and effectively without reading any of that fine print that, let's be honest, nobody reads, then there's a problem with my design. And uh, so I'm setting the bar very high, but I also am trying to be realistic. Absolutely. And uh, before we wrap up, I understand that you have an interesting uh, uh, story to share regarding an off-label use and uh, you know, it's uh, getting uh, getting it to the FDA uh, with a medical device. Can you can you share that? Yeah. So, in a very generic sense, um, I do um, uh, a lot of pre-subs at the FDA. Uh, I'm down there just about once once a month. And just a few months ago, uh, we were doing a pre-sub uh, for a particular uh, company. Now, technically. Uh, this was a pre-sub meeting, but the device was already on the market. And here's, here's, here's what happened. So the device was originally brought to the market under a 510K with one particular indication. The, uh, um, the, the, the company went back after that with another 510K uh, because they wanted to add a second indication, and that went through fine. Now we went back uh, to the FDA for a third time to add yet a third indication. Now, without getting into the details here, that third label expansion we did as a de novo rather than a 510K. But for the purposes of our discussion, Sean, that doesn't really matter. What FDA wanted was uh, a clinical trial, an RCT, the so-called gold standard, in order to support that third indication. Now, here's the, here's the dilemma. People were already using this device uh, uh, for that third indication, um, technically off-label, right, because it was not on the label yet. Uh, and so we had a ton of real-world evidence to support adding that third indication to our label under the de novo. Uh, but FDA was insisting on... Um, uh, on, on the company doing this randomized clinical trial, uh, which would have cost, you know, a bunch of time and money. And coincidentally, Sean, this, this meeting happened at FDA literally just a couple of weeks after that real-world evidence guidance came out. 
So I anticipated this. You know, one of the one of the many philosophies that I've developed after playing this game for about 25 years now is that you can't anticipate every problem or question, you, but you can anticipate many of them. I anticipated this resistance, if you will, from FDA. Let me be clear. I'm not being critical of FDA. They have a very important job to do. But I anticipated this. I had a hard copy of that guidance with me. And when they started pushing back to say, you know, we really want the RCT data, we really want the RCT data, I pulled that um, guidance out of my briefcase and I said, here's a guidance that just came out of CDRH literally a few weeks ago, basically saying that it's okay for me to do what it is that, you know, I'm suggesting that we do here, right? right. So, uh, so when, you know, in, in, in previous discussions, I've characterized the whole relationship between the company and the FDA is a poker game in every sense of the word. And just because, <clears throat> pardon me, just because somebody understands the rules of poker doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good poker player, and it certainly doesn't mean they're going to win the game. I want to do everything that I can legal, of course. I don't want to be wearing any orange jumpsuits in order to win the game. So uh, you, 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 obviously we have to work together. I have nothing but the respect, you know, the ultimate respect for the job and the responsibility of the FDA. But on the other hand, um, you know, in some cases things are, are worth drawing a line in the sand. And uh, never mind regulation, but in my professional opinion as a Ph.D. in biomedical engineering, I did not think that collecting additional data in a formal clinical trial for this particular product was warranted because I would argue that not only did we already have the data, but we had better data because it was realistic than what would have been collected in a clinical trial if we were to spend the time and money doing that. So that's a quick example. I've got other examples as well, but uh, bottom line, I think that uh, this whole topic of real-world evidence um, is, a, is a very interesting one, and um, I think more and more companies are going to be uh, using it uh, in the future for label expansions, and perhaps at some point we'll be able to use that real-world data uh, from outside the U.S., from, from other countries as well, uh, as part of a U.S. submission. Um, but that, as I said, is a topic of a different discussion. Absolutely, and it seems we've always got new topics for for discussion lingering from uh, from these uh, these broadcasts. And uh, I'd like to thank you, of course, today for for helping to make a little little more sense of real world evidence for for myself and for the uh, MPO and ODT. Uh, uh, viewers and listeners out there. Uh, if uh, any of you listeners have a question for, for Mike or you have a suggestion for a future topic for Mike on MedTech, please just email it in to me. Uh, the link is provided on the, uh, on the podcast page. Uh, otherwise, this is Sean Fenske for MPO and ODT Magazines and uh, thanking you for, for listening and thanking Mike again for uh, explaining this topic.